0: All right, well, if you have your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 10, would you say amen? Amen. amen. So if you have been watching the news this week? Uh, a lot of things going on in the news and uh, maybe most notably uh, what has certainly been um, talked about a lot on the news programs is the conflict that's happening in the country of Israel. And a lot of people have a lot of questions about what's going on and, and uh, why this violence has erupted so severely in these days. If you keep an eye on the Middle East very much as I do, you know that it's not uncommon. These, these things tend to flare up uh, and then they will die back down and then uh, months or years will go by and then, and then they will flare up again and, and then die back down. But this particular episode of violence and conflict between Hamas in Gaza and between the Israeli uh, military um, is worse than we've seen, probably since 2014. Um, There have been something on the order of 2,000 rockets that have been fired out of Gaza, uh, and those rockets are coming down uh, in uh, Israeli cities and towns. Uh, Some have even hit uh, around the area of Jerusalem. Um, I got a video from a friend in Jerusalem just a couple of days ago Uh, showing a rocket flying over uh, his home, over his patio. Um, Rockets have landed in Tel Aviv, and many, many rockets down further in the south around Ashdod and Ashkelon and places closer to Gaza. Uh, Very often what you hear from the news does not give you the full story either of what is happening or why it's happening. And people are asking me, what is going on? Why are these things occurring? And that would take an entire message, really, to talk about all of the things going on. And what uh, particu- what started this particular conflict is really not the big issue, or at least what is being said is the cause of this issue. Uh, this conflict is not the big issue. One of the things that um, is a real flare point, a real flash point, I should say, uh, for conflict in Jerusalem has to do with a little tiny piece of, of property, piece of real estate known as the Temple Mount. And every picture you've ever seen of Jerusalem, you've seen the Temple Mount because it's that, it is that property where the Dome of the Rock sits, the big gold dome. It's the Muslim shrine uh, called the Dome of the, of the Rock. Um, This week on Monday, I was in a staff meeting here and my phone buzzed. I, I looked at it. It was a text from Tracy. and When I looked, the picture that came up was that gold dome. I thought it was on fire. It was glowing with flames. And I was I was stunned because if you know much about Bible prophecy and and you think about the destruction of that dome, I thought, oh my goodness, this is big news. Well, it wasn't, that wasn't what was happening. There was a tree next to it that was on fire, and the flame was reflecting off of the gold dome. But that particular location really is is the epicenter of most of the conflict, really, be fair to say, all of the conflict that arises. In the Holy Land. So I I sort of want to take you there today. Now, today wouldn't be a good day to be there physically, so we're not going there physically, but I want to I want to take you there in your mind. I I want to transport you to that place, the place we call the Temple Mount. And I want to help you understand the significance of this temple location and what happened there uh, in, in Judaism, in Jewish worship through the years. One of the things that I want you to be sure that you recognize is that if you were to think about the spiritual life of the Jewish people throughout the ages, the vitality and the joy and their connection with God through the ages, all of that spiritual life under the old covenant was centered in their sacred gatherings at that very location where the gold dome is today, where the temple of God stood until 2,000 years ago. This was the place where the nation of Israel, where the people of Israel would assemble together, where they would come together as one people. One people in one with one voice, praising the one true God and offering worship to their God at their temple. In fact, the law prescribed that they had to make this journey. Three times a year, every Jewish male was required under the law to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And they would come there often with their families, even their extended families, mothers and dads and sons and daughters. They would make their pilgrim to Jerusalem and to Mount Zion, the high point in Jerusalem, and to the temple of God, which stood there on Mount Zion they would come from all over from wherever they lived throughout the land of Israel and in many cases beyond the borders of Israel they would make their journey and the journey to worship in Jerusalem was as much about worship as the actual appearance before the temple in Jerusalem was about worship this entire processional was a processional of worship. They would come together in caravans. They would travel with their community. Maybe an entire village would travel together. They would come with their immediate family, but also their extended family. You imagine first cousins, second cousins, third cousins, and and just these great caravans of Jewish families and villagers coming together to the city of God. And when they would finally make their way up from the desert floor around the Dead Sea or or up from the north or or up from the the south, it doesn't matter how you come to Jerusalem, from any direction, you're always going up. Jerusalem is up. And so when when they would make their way to Jerusalem, they would come up the mountain and they would begin to see for the first time the temple on Mount Moriah, standing tall, some 90 feet tall, it stood made of limestone, glistening in the sunlight, overlaid parts of it with gold. And they would come before this holy mountain with their families and their villagers and all of the nation bringing their offerings. I mean, imagine imagine what a moment this was when you're, you, you've been singing psalms all along the way. You've been re- reciting passages from the Torah all along the way. It's been a spiritual journey the whole way. And finally you arrive and there's the temple and now you've got your your offering, your your sacrifice and you approach the temple. You climb the temple steps. They would be required to immerse themselves in a baptismal pool, a mikvah, and, and be cleansed ceremonially. They would come out of that ritual bath and now approach a priest who would take their sacrifice and then they would step back, and that sacrifice would be made to God. I mean, th- this was a very profound, personal experience, but it was also a deeply communal experience. It wasn't uh, a Jewish person number one and Israeli number two and, and tribe of Benjamin guy number three. It wasn't that they were just coming individually. They were a nation coming together. They were a community coming together to worship God. Now the most significant of all of the three feasts or festivals where they were required to come to Jerusalem, the most significant of those occurred every year in the fall of the year. It was the most holy, the highest holy day in the Jewish calendar, and it remains so today, it's Yom Kippur, or we would know it more readily as the Day of Atonement. And it was on this day particularly, when they would come together and make sacrifice and offer worship to God as a nation, that all of the nation was joined together in absolute unified hope before the Lord. Because on that day, a sacrifice would be made to God which would provide for the covering of their sins for the entire coming year. This one sacrifice was their national hope. It was their their redemptive uh, hopes were all tied up in this one sacrifice being offered in the temple by one man who was the high priest of the Jewish nation. When he would take that sacrifice into the Holy of Holies and the blood of that sacrifice into the Holy of Holies and, and intercede, mediate between the people and God, all of the Jewish nation would stand and wait and hope expectantly that God would in fact forgive them for another year. Everything, all of their hopes hinged on the work of this one man, the high priest. Now last week I said something to you that you may not have thought very much of in the moment, but it's an important statement that I knew would lead us into what we were going to learn today, and it was this statement out of John 17. I said to you that Jesus is our high priest. Do you remember we were talking about that? I said Jesus is our high priest, and when we studied the prayer in John 17, we learned that that was his high priestly prayer that he was mediating for us, interceding for us in that prayer. Well, this idea of Jesus being our high priest is not a small thing. It's not an insignificant truth. And in fact, it's not just something that I say, of course. The Bible repeats it and affirms it over and over again. Hold your finger in Hebrews 10 and go back to chapter number 6, if you will. Hebrews chapter 6, I want you to look at verse number 20, the last verse in that chapter. Where Hebrews 6.20 says, where, speaking of Jesus, speaking of the temple in heaven, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, who has been made a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you have a pen, underline that statement in verse 20. Jesus has been made a high priest. There's a biblical affirmation of this priestly role of Jesus. Jesus is our High priest. Now he says something at the end of verse 20 which is, which is really interesting and, and I could take the rest of our time together today and unpack it for you if we had time. It says that he was made a, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so he mentions this very mysterious... Figure in the Bible called Melchizedek. And no, I'm not even gonna crack the door to start talking about who Melchizedek is because we don't have time. I just want you to focus on this fact that he is our high priest. Well, turn one page and look at chapter 7 and verse number 23. Again, the Bible says, And they, truly, speaking of the priests in Israel, as we've been describing, those priests were many. There were many priests. Because they were not allowed to continue to be priests by reason of death. It's a very logical statement. He says Israel had many priests through the years. Why? Because they all died. And every time one would die, they'd have to replace him with another one. Priests couldn't live forever. Verse 24 says, but this man, Jesus... Because he continues or lives forever, he has an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come to God by him, seeing that he uh, ever lives to make intercession for us. For we have such a high priest who is holy and harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who does not need daily, as those high priests did, to offer up a sacrifice first for his own sins... And then for the people, for this he did once when he offered, not a ram or a bull or a goat or a lamb, when he offered, say it, he offered up himself. So what he tells us, what the writer tells us in chapter 7 is that this high priest, so named in chapter 6, verse 20, now is an everlasting or an ever-living high priest and that he has offered not an animal sacrifice, but he has offered Himself. Look at chapter 8 and verse 1. Now, of the things whereof we have spoken, this is the sum. We have a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of, mages- uh, of the majesty in the heavens. He is a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched in heaven. Now, if y'all are tracking with me, I want you to shout amen. Are you hanging with me? Here's what the book of Hebrews is teaching us. Jesus has been named a high priest far above every other previous high priest because he lives forever and because the sacrifice that he offered was not an animal, it was his own blood. And now having offered his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, he is seated in the tabernacle or the temple in the heavens. Look at chapter nine, verses 11 and 12, chapter 9, verse 11, But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle or temple, not made with hands, that is to say not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Jesus named a high priest, lives forever, made the perfect sacrifice which has obtained eternal redemption for us. One more before we get into the text, chapter 10. Look at verses 11 and 12. Chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. And every priest would stand daily ministering and offering, oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus after he had offered one sacrifice for all sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Now watch the progression, hang with me. I want you to understand that in Judaism, their spiritual life was built around, centered in a city in Jerusalem with a temple where a human high priest would go into that temple and, and seek to bring through the mediation of the old covenant a covering for the people's sins for a year. And all of the nation would come together for that event. But the writer of Hebrews says, we, have, we live in a very different covenant. We live in a very different relationship with God. Because Jesus is our high priest, not some man in Jerusalem. Jesus lives forever. He will never die. Jesus offered not the blood of a bull or a goat or a lamb or a ram. He offered his own blood. Jesus rose from the dead and ascended and down, rules as high priest in heaven, and we have eternal, secure redemption through Jesus. Well, everybody in the room ought to say amen. Praise God. This is what Jesus, our high priest, has done. And maybe you say, pastor, I know all of this. Why are you taking such such pains this morning to build out this redemptive story, this redemptive structure, when we already know these things? You might be saying, praise God, Jesus has forgiven me and I don't have to do what those Jewish people did and I don't have to go to Jerusalem and I don't have to make a pilgrimage to a temple and and, and I don't have to bring a sacrifice. Nobody saw an altar when you came into church today. This building is not a temple. It's just a gathering place. You didn't see any sacrifices being made outside. You didn't see any bloodstains on the sidewalk. All of those things are done and you may say, praise God, Jesus has done all of that. We're not in that old covenant. We don't have all those old requirements, it's just me and Jesus, right? Jesus is just, it's just me and him, me and my right-hand man, right, Jesus? I don't have any of these congregational, corporate worship kinds of obligations, do I? Isn't it just me and Jesus, and that's good enough? Well, it's a good question. So what does the text say? Well, look at chapter 10. You knew we were going to finally get to chapter 10. Look at chapter 10 beginning in verse number 19. Having therefore, brethren, by the way, those words, having therefore, encompass all that we've just talked about, chapter 6 through chapter 10. Because of all these things that our high priest Jesus has done. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and a living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say through his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast our profession, uh, the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful who promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now I want you to take your pen, for those of you who take notes, and I'm gonna ask you in verse number 19 to circle this word to enter into the holiest. Four words, really. Enter into the holiest. There is this affirmation in verse number 19 that we can come into the presence of God through the work of Jesus. And then I want you in verse number 22 to circle the words, draw near, that we are to come together, that we are to draw near in the presence of God. And then I want you to go to verse 25 and circle the word assemble or assembling where the Bible says that we are to assemble as we draw near to enter into the presence of God. We do so as an assembly. Now, I'm drawing a, a, a parallel for you today. I'm, I'm, I'm creating a, con, a contrast for you today to look at Judaism under the old covenant and an assembled group of people worshiping at a temple with a human high priest and now under a new covenant, a relationship with God through Jesus where we enjoy uh, forgiveness of our sins and ble- the blessing of entering his presence, but it's a very personal thing that Christ has done for us individually. We don't have to go to Jerusalem. We don't have to go to the temple. And I'm asking the question, is it just me and Jesus in this new covenant? And do I have any obligations as it relates to assembling? Well, the Bible says that we should come into his presence, that we should draw near together, and that we should assemble. And in fact, I would suggest to you that the assembly that you and I have been called to in the new covenant with Jesus as our high priest is far greater than those assemblies of the Jewish people under the old covenant. The fact that we are called together is much more profound. I mean, think about it. Under the old covenant, they gathered together a few times a year. Once a year, twice a year, three times a year, they would gather together. They would come together to an earthly temple made of stone. They would gather on the basis and the hope of an animal sacrifice mediated by a human high priest. But you and I come together. We assemble not three times a year. We assemble every week, right? We come together on the Lord's Day. And when we arrive in our assembly on the Lord's day, we're not coming into the presence of God in a, temple, stone, a stone temple. We are coming into the presence of God through the Holy Spirit who indwells us and he meets with us. We draw near together, not through the blood of an animal sacrifice, but through the blood shed by Jesus Christ. On the cross. And we come before God Almighty not through the mediation of a human priest, a man on the earth, but through the eternal and resurrected high priest, Jesus, our Savior, who was in heaven. If you understand, would you say, Amen? Do you get this? This is the power and the privilege of the redeemed people of God to gather together to assemble in his presence. I want to say it to you plainly. The new covenant in Christ did not minimize the necessity of assembling together before the Lord. It maximized the value of God's people gathering in a way far greater than could have ever occurred under the old covenant. And so with all of that, I want to welcome you into week number, what is this, week seven of this series where we're talking about being transformed. In these weeks together, we're learning about the power of the risen Christ to transform our lives. And we've spent a lot of time talking about who it is that he transforms and and why it is that he transforms us. And recently, we've been talking about how it is that he transforms us. We've learned there are three influences that he uses primarily to transform our lives. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the agent of transformation. It's the Holy Spirit. I can't change myself. The Holy Spirit brings transformation to my life. Last Sunday, we talked about the truths of transformation. That is the Bible. It's the Word of God that that brings change to us. And then today, we're going to talk about the people of transformation. Who are the people that God uses in my life and how does God use me in the life of other people so that we can be transformed together? Those people are the church. And so today I want to talk to you about the value that God places on the assembly of Christian community. I want to talk to you about the value that God places on us being fully connected In the body of Christ. About what New Testament Christianity is all about. About the importance of discipling relationships. And the necessity of spiritual care. We'll do this all from chapter 10 verses 19 through 25. Let me get you to write this down if you you will. If you're a note taker. I want you to note with me first of all that the church. When we think about the church. We should understand that the church is a community of faith. First and foremost primarily. The church is a community of faith. So let me ask you a question. Why do you attend church? Why do you do it? Now, I should say that fewer people uh, than ever before in America actually do attend church in these days. Um, uh, Up until about 20 years ago, 90% of Americans attended church at least somewhat regularly. That was a very consistent number throughout our history. It was always about 90%. About 20 years ago, that number began to change dramatically and quickly. And the number today is only 75%. So there's an entire quarter of the American population who never, ever go to church. But in in truth, we're talking about people who are not Christians in the first place. Uh, for the most part. But it's also true to say that among people who consider themselves Christians, fewer of them go to church today. Church attendance is, generally speaking, at an all-time low. Now, here you sit. You're, you don't fit that statistic. You're in church. But here's my question. Why? Why do you attend church? Now, there might be a lot of answers that could be given to that. You, you might say, well, I, um, uh, I have friends here, and so this is where I can see my friends, and, and I can, in fact, Sharon was celebrating this, and it's a wonderful thing to celebrate in her testimony that we build relationships here, and that's great. You might say, I have friends at church. That's good. Maybe you say, somebody makes me come to church. <laughs> my wife makes me come. That's why I'm here. Wouldn't be here if she didn't kick me out of bed. Maybe it's your children who make you come. Maybe they have had one Sunday in Brookstone Kids Children's Ministry and they are like rousing you out of bed every Sunday morning because they want to come to children's ministry. Maybe it's them or maybe your motives are, are more pure than that. You want your kids to have a spiritual training uh, place in their life. and So you bring your family here to get some training and that's good. Maybe you just say, you know, truth is, it's just a convenient habit. I mean, it's just kind of what I do. I just come. I don't even really think about why I come. Maybe you'd say, it makes me feel better about myself. I don't know. That's four possibilities. There's probably 4,000 other possibilities. And I want to say, there's nothing wrong with any of those reasons in and of themselves. There's there's some merit in, in all of those Reasons. But here's what I do want you to know. Listen carefully. That if these are your reasons for attending church, while there might be some merit in them, they will never be enough for you to fully embrace the biblical concept of Christian community. Because if you come to church to see your friends, the moment those friendships begin to wane a little bit, you'll no longer come. Or if you come to church... For children's ministry, the moment your children age out of that ministry that you love, you'll, you'll no longer attend. Or if you come out of habit, the moment some other priority or habit comes up and takes more priority in, in your life, you'll stop to come. If these or stop coming, if these are the reasons that you attend, you will never fully embrace the biblical idea of Christian community. And the biblical concept of Christian community is this. It is that we are a family of faith. We are a faith community. In fact, look at verse number 21. The Bible says this, and having a high priest over the house or the family of God. We are at Brookstone, are you listening? A household of faith. We're an assembly of the family of God. We share a common faith. Listen to Ephesians 2 verse number 19. It says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, and you are members of the household of God. And so when we understand that the church of which we are a part, is the, it's my faith family. We share a common faith. We abide under the lordship of our interceding high priest in heaven, whose name is Jesus, then we recognize that we share some things that bring us together. What are those things? Look at what the Bible says in verse number 19. We share a common boldness to come into his presence. Verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now, by the way, you need to understand what a shocking statement that would have been to every Jewish person uh, 2,000 years ago reading that statement when the temple was standing in Jerusalem. Because they wouldn't have been thinking about the presence of God spiritually, they would have been thinking about the Holy of Holies in the temple, and none of them ever went close to that. Only the high priest could go in that room, and he could only go one day a year, and no normal person ever approached it. And the writer of Hebrews says, in Christ, we have the ability to boldly, with confidence, come into the very presence of God. I have that in Christ, you have that in Christ, we share that in Christ, and that shared access to God calls us together in an assembly. In verse number 20, he says that it's the flesh of Christ, the body of Christ that was broken, that was torn in order to make the way into heaven open. In verse 22, he says we have full confidence in our standing before Christ. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. In verse 22, he says, Our guilt is gone. We've been sprinkled clean. Our bodies have been washed. We've been given the gift of holiness. And in verse number 23, we never need to waver because Christ has made us right with God. Now, loved ones, we experience these things individually, but we share them in common. And these truths are to be shared among brothers and sisters verse number 19. He says, brothers, this is a family. We come together. He says in verse number 20, the way into heaven was consecrated for us. Not for me, not for you, but for us in community. Verse number 22, we draw near together. Verse number 22, our hearts have been sprinkled. Verse 23, we share a profession of faith. And these aren't truths to be celebrated alone. They're not. They're not truths that we enjoy in a private, personal, one-on-one only relationship with Jesus. They are truths that draw us together, that we worship God together. And when I understand that, when I recognize that you are my brothers and sisters in these blessed benefits provided to us by our high priest, then I must assemble with you, the community of faith. Must come together. And that motivation will keep me coming week after week, month after month, participating day after day and year after year and committed to this community that God has made me a part of. Now, having said all of that, I need to to make the next logical point. But if you're listening, I want you to say amen. Can I warn you, it's gonna sting just a little bit, but I love you. And the text tells us this plainly. Jot it down, it is that intentional isolation is selfish. If I am living an isolated life as a follower of Jesus, if if I have made an intentional, purposeful decision, keeping everybody at arm's length, church not really my thing, don't really need it, not too interested in it, I mean, take it or leave it, not committed or connected. I just need you to hear me say, that intentional decision is, by definition, selfishness. And you say, Pastor, I, I don't feel like I'm being selfish. I mean, that's not my, it's not my heart. Well, what does the text say? I want you to look at it. Look at verse number 24. In verse 24, he says, And let us... Go to church, is that what it says? No, first of all, it says, and let us consider one another. Stop right there. Let us consider one another. In light of everything that he's taught us about, Jesus, our high priest, who sacrificed his own blood, that we might be redeemed, and he forever abides with us, and he calls us into his presence as a body, drawing near together, he says, as you come together, as you consider being part of this community of faith, Consider other people. The word consider simply means to make certain that my mind is on others. It means to be mindful of or to think carefully about. And Then he goes on to say in verse number 25, "...not forsaking the assembling, the gathering of ourselves together." be mindful of one another, be considerate of one another, don't be selfish, and make sure that you are assembling together. Now the word forsake means don't stay away. When he says don't forsake the assembly, it means don't stay away from the assembly. It's that that simple. It means don't neglect it or don't abandon it or don't cease and desist from assembling. Don't desert it. Because the passage says if we neglect the assembling, then we are being inconsiderate toward our brothers and sisters. Now let me explain to you why and how. Number one, I, I want to say that we need to hear this in in this day particularly of isolation and social distancing that has been thrust upon our world. In the last 15 months, we have become accustomed to being able to do almost everything alone. Almost everything. Amazon will deliver anything to you. And they'll probably bring it tomorrow. It's true. Why do I need to go to the grocery store? Why should I go fight the crowds at Walmart? Why do I need to go to the mall? All I need to do is go online And order it and it will be there. Give them my, I don't even have to give them my credit card number. They got it. (laughs) I just click and it's on its way. That's the world that we live in. We don't, we don't even have to go to the doctor very often anymore. We do teledoc services. I mean, doctors virtually examine us. We live in a world where meetings can happen by Zoom, where we have friends, friends. On social media, I've got all these friends. I don't even know them. They don't know me. But we're friends. And we interact like that and we share a little bit of life and it feels like connection and it, and it feels like it, like it works for us. We don't have to go to the bank anymore. We can deposit, make our deposits online. We can make our withdrawals online. We can pay our bills online. We, it's what would have been Pre-pandemic considered modern conveniences of the first world has become for us a trap. If you're all listening, say amen. I want to tell you something that, that, that I sincerely believe. I believe Satan has used this pandemic for a lot of things. But one of the primary things that I'm convinced that Satan has used the pandemic to do is to Divide is to divide is the wrong word to separate many Christians from their local church and their Christian community. They tell us, statistics tell us that between 20 to 30 percent of people who attended church prior to the pandemic are never coming back, they're never coming back. And the reason they're not coming back is not because they don't believe in Jesus anymore. The reason they're not coming back is because they've bought a bill of goods which says that online church is just as good as online banking, online Zoom meetings, online shopping, that online church is just as valid as sitting and being with my church family. And you need to hear me say, it is a lie. It is not as valid. It is not as good. Now listen, thank God for online services. Thank God for online live streaming. Thank God for on-demand sermons and thank God for websites and all the things that we have there. Those are good and helpful things, but they are good and helpful tools. Online worship particularly is a good and helpful tool in a temporary, for a temporary time when someone cannot be together with their church family or If they're permanently homebound and can't, it gives them some semblance of connection, but it is intended not to replace, but to be a temporary substitute. And you just need to hear me say this, that prolonged, unnecessary viewing of church services from home by believers who could be in participating with that church family you need to hear me say, is evidence of a selfish spirit somewhere in that person. Because it's easier, it's convenient, I don't have to get up and go, I can just sit and listen and receive and it feels like I'm connected. And it is the lie of the enemy. If y'all still love me, say amen. Amen. It's truth. And so I want to help you today, okay? I want to help you. And, and what I want to do is give you some simple steps to, to break the isolation, okay? If you're isolated, to any degree, I want you to take a little step, all right? So, so here, I'm, let me give you three steps. Number one, if you attend church, that is, you're here today, or it's normal for you to be here, but this is all you do. You come to church on Sunday mornings, and that's it. So you're not in a life group. You're not serving in a ministry anywhere. You're, you don't know many people. You're not connecting, You just come in, and that's that's a good start, but that's all. Here's the step I want you to take. I want you to take the step of getting in a life group or getting on a serve team. Do one of those two things. If you're here, but you're not connected, those are two easy things to do. Start to serve, join a life group, one of those two. By doing that, you'll break the bonds of isolation that keep you separated from community. Number two, if you attend sporadically, Every month or so, whatever. If you attend sporadically, here's what I want you to do. Begin attending regularly. That simple. Not asking you to jump over a high mountain. Just begin to say, you know what, I'm just going to value the assembly. I get it. I'm a part of a family of faith. We share common faith. We have a high priest. We're called to assemble together in his presence and to encourage one another. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to make it a priority. Attend regularly. Number three If you watch online only, and I'm looking at the camera, if you watch online only and you're able to attend, if you can't attend, you're working, you're sick, number of reasons why people can't, but if you can and you've simply chosen not to because it's easier, break the power of isolation, show up next Sunday, and then thereafter begin to say, I'm going to begin to attend and gather and assemble. By doing that, we will take a step. Each of us, wherever we are, will take a step to connect with this community. And you may say, well, why should I do that? I mean, really, I'm kind of content where I am. Why should I do that? It's the last thing. Write it down. It is because biblical community is transformative. It transforms us. And so uh, the writer of Hebrews uh, would say, um, don't be selfish. Consider others. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, but come together, participate. And by the way, can I just stop and say something really important? Attendance at church is not about checking a box. It's not about I did that thing I was supposed to do, and therefore I'm, I'm better off now. It's because attendance within the body, assembling, is the prerequisite for participating. You have to be here in order to serve. You have to be here in order to connect. And so you take that step so that you might participate in the body life of the church. And what does that look like? What do you do? What do you get to do when you're connected? Well, he says in verse number 24, let us consider one another and provoke one another. Stir one another up. When I'm connected in the assembly, I get to stir you up. You get to stir me up. We get to encourage one another. He says in verse 25, we can exhort one another. Now, you know what the word exhort means? It means to put your arm around and come along with. That's what it means. You can't do that from home. You can't do that once every six months. You put your arm around and you walk through life with somebody. And as you come together and you value the assembly and you understand the value of Christian community and you connect with other people and you serve other people and you're not only thinking of, of, of ease and convenience for yourself, but you're thinking of how can I serve this body, then guess what happens? We begin to show love, do you see it, verse 24, 25, love and good works. And suddenly in my life and in the lives of those around me, we begin to walk in love We begin to walk in good works and our lives begin to resemble Jesus more fully. Here's a simple truth. We make each other better. We help each other to grow. And so my encouragement to you is break the chains of isolation. All of us to some degree in some way are isolated. Whatever step you need to take, take a tiny step. Break the chains of isolation. Connect in community. Stir up others. Help one another grow. Love one another. Consider one another. And we will become what God wants us to be. It's a three-legged table of transformation. The Holy Spirit within me changing me. The Word of God in my hand and in my heart changing me. And the people of God around me speaking into my life and me speaking into theirs changing me. And changing them and in those with those three influences God takes our lives and he makes us what he wants us to be for his glory do you understand would you say amen? amen amen may God help us I love you church I really do I love you online church I really do and I want all of us to take the steps that all of us that each of us needs to take